Hi everyone, I'm Emily. And I'm Vincent, the guest for the day. And this is The Lighthouse Lowdown. <laughs> And there it is. All right. So Vincent is helping me out today, and he's my boyfriend. He directly has to deal with all of my nautical decor and nautical chat, right? Welcome to the show. (laughs) (laughs) I get to subject everyone else to it now and not just you. Part of the group. I like it. One of us. So I'm going to say that, Vince, you noted that I sounded like I could have talked about a lot more in my first episode because I just had everything in bullet points. And there's so much history to do with lighthouses and all this cool information that I think I'm going to start each episode with like a little a little history note or a fun fact note or something gotcha. either to connect to the first episode or the episode before that or just for fun. Gotcha. Well, what you got today? Today, I want to t- I want to let everyone know that not all lighthouses are your typical towers. In my last episode, I talked about how this became the norm for lighthouses, and lighthouses are now concrete and steel. And the truth is, there are many different types of lighthouses, and they depend on where your lighthouse is servicing and what the climate and what the environment is like. So there's like, you said, sorry to interrupt, there's like thousands, right? That's what you said in the first oh, episode. Yeah. Tw- like 20,000 plus? Over, over 20,000 lighthouses. So what dictates what type of lighthouse it is? Like you said, there's different types. So what does that, what does so, that mean? For example, there are, this one's just um, most influenced by the environment, are skeletal lighthouses. And these are basically like, you know, when you see those really big cell phone towers, mm. it's like that. And then there's a light on top. So the it's okay. it's for really windy locations. If you're really high up on a cliff, if they have a lighthouse like that, they'll make it skeletal. And this is just because it gives it extremely low wind resistance. So they don't have to worry about it. Okay. So they're all just like a big steel frame or yeah, frame. Exactly. So what's <laughs> are, uh, essentially isn't that the same thing as a cell tower? It's just a cell tower that doesn't work basically. Well, it's like a cell tower they, they that doesn't have cell service and also is extremely bright on top. <laughs> All right. Noted. Noted. And they have conical lighthouses that are actually, okay, I'll say there are round lighthouses, which are your typical rounded towers. Conical towers are basically the same as round towers, except that they're more tapered. So kind of like a um, orange traffic cone. It's like an exaggerated tapered end that's thick, a conical. thick conical towers yeah thick. <laughs> that tower she thick <laughs> it's a thick ass tower it's a thick boy and then there's square or integral lighthouses which are lighthouses that are built into a house it's like if you had a house and then on top was like the last seven feet of a lighthouse okay so it's kind of square is the shape of the tower and also larger squares, the shape of the home below. Yeah. Okay. And there used to mention there's not many lighthouses that are used as homes anymore. So that's a historical way to do it or. Yeah, that of... was just, I think, more of a space saver kind of thing. Okay. And a lot of those that are the lighthouses are built into the houses are now like museums or 
uh, bed and breakfasts because awesome. they were the easiest to convert into Airbnbs. <laughs> All right. <Okay. laughs> we should get sponsored by Airbnb. Sponsorship. Let's go. <laughs> Uh, and then there's pyramid lighthouses, which I looked it up and I can only see one of them, but I did read that they're most often in Canada. Um, they're not common and they're just shaped like a pyramid. And I couldn't even see where the light comes from. I would need to uh, look more into that. But since this is just a, um, a history bullet, well, I didn't do that. Gotcha. <laughs> Maybe that'll be the bullet for my next one is to explain pyramid lighthouses. I'm already Googling it, so. Oh, well, why don't you tell me? So far, I'm seeing pyramids that are next to lighthouses. Oh, yeah. I see one that's a pyramid shape right on the rocks on the coast. Does it have red and white stripes? Uh, yeah, red and white. I yeah, that's the any. only one I could find. I'll read, I'll read on. Go ahead. All right. And then the last type that I saw is schoolhouse. And these are kind of like the, the square integral ones that are built into houses, but they actually look just like a schoolhouse. And instead of where they have the bell typically on top, they would have a light. And these were built mostly along the Great Lakes because they were cheap for like harbor lights. Hmm. That was my note on, I will title it, not all lighthouses are your typical towers. There you go. <laughs> so this episode is actually going to cover the beacon of lighthouses, which is the coolest part. And it has a lot of history because everyone wanted a piece of the pie. So someone would invent the newest lamp, the newest type of really cool lighthouse light, and someone mm. would change one tiny little thing and name it after themselves and get a patent. Good old days. So I shortened it a lot to just the ones that I thought were interesting or are the basis for how lighthouse lamps are today. Okay. So <laughs> Are you still searching? <laughs> I, I was searching. I did find the triangle-shaped lighthouse with white and red stripes alternating is in Australia. Oh. It's a lookout at Port Ferry Coastal Reserve. So it's one particular lighthouse. That's the only one I've found that's actually pyramid-shaped. Neat. But uh, if anybody else can let us know, maybe we'll make a feature of it. Yeah, right. Maybe I'll just cover that lighthouse. Maybe it's the only one left because nobody liked them. It's the Lone Pyramid. So, all right. So, uh, tell me about beacons. Where'd okay. We, uh, where'd we start? Where'd we get to? So, we start with candles and we end with franal prisms. I will tell you a lot about each one. So, the first record of what was lighting the actual lighthouse structures was in the 1500s in England. And this is when they started using individual candles for lighting the lighthouses. And you know that candles don't generate a whole bunch of light, so they would put them in clusters or in a candelabrum, which is what you see in medieval movies when they have a chandelier that's a circle. Okay and they have the candles on each ring. Those were an improvement from coal fires, which is what they used when I was talking about before they had structures and they just had them on hilltops. Right, that so, is interesting. So yeah. they, they have somebody feeding these fires all the time. Right, yeah, and in my mind, I'm thinking someone's gotta be there 24 seven. These people take shifts. Do they sleep next to the fire? I don't know. They soon needed houses, therefore the lighthouse. And thus, <laughs> <laughs> candles. Uh, these were an improvement because it's a lot less dirty, a little bit less maintenance, and coal fires produced a lot of smoke. This actually hid flames. We don't want that because these are lighthouses. Lighthouse keepers would be in charge of making the candles on site because at this time, no candles were commercially produced. So homemade candles were used in the 1500s in England, especially is what I read. In France, these homemade candles were called boogies. 
I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm reading that very American-like, and it's actually supposed to be bouquets or something. <laughs> yeah, Amazon up. sells them apparently. At candles. <laughs> Boogies. I just looked it up, and it's called bougies, not boogies, and not bouquets. It's just bougies. Right. They were made from tallow, and this was in the early 18th century U.S. lighthouses and in the Boston Harbor Lighthouse that I talked about in the first episode. Mm -hmm. He used those, but problem was tallow was really smoky and stinky. Like, it was cheap to make them, which is why they used them in the first place. But tallow, it smelled so bad that the manu manufacturing process was so unpleasant that it was banned in several European cities. Oh, man. So is this like beef tallow? Like yes. It's like animal fat. for cooking? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I know some people use it for cooking today, but I'm guessing it was probably sitting around going rancid type of... Right. Or just... That's great. Yeah, I mean, they're homemade, so I'm sure it's... It's the good stuff. It's the, the real, the real it's stuff. It's the moonshine of candles. No additives, nothing non-organic. It's just straight up tallow. <laughs> that no filter fat. Yeah. Gotta love it. Okay. So, so tallow wax, candles. Yeah. Wax candles were better in every way, but they were just really expensive. So they didn't use them as much, especially because lighthouses went through so many candles. It was hard to justify using mm. wax candles. Of course. And lamps began being used as early as 1500, and these were made by local artisans. So they were hard to get your hands on and weren't around as much. It was a little bit these, easier to use candles. These would have been oil oil lamps? Yeah, they used braided cotton wicks, and they used fish, seal, or whale oil. Which, I'm sorry, but how does fish oil smell not as bad as tallow? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I that's, guarantee that's... the lighthouse was not the place to be when they were burning fish oil. Probably not. Would have smelled like uh, something ocean inspired. Maybe everything smelled like fish, so it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> Head to toe, krill oil. Don't worry about it. At this time, the lamps didn't have any chimneys or reflectors, and the chimneys were to promote airflow and keep smoke away from the flame. And reflectors enhanced the light from candles by putting a reflective surface behind the candle. So at this time, there was just really poor light quality with a lot of smoke and fumes. So not the best job in the whole world in the 1500s. There was some growth after that, but I'm going to skip ahead a couple hundred years into the 1700s when they had spider lamps. This was the next upgrade that I read about, and it was basically a metal pan, and the pan was filled with rows of wicks, and the pan was filled with oil. So they would light all of these wicks at one time, and it would create one large like, at least from a distance, the flames would appear much brighter because you'd see them all at once instead of just having right. a couple candles. But it still had a pretty low light output and needed lots of oil, oil consumption, and lots of smoke and fumes, just like before. So so is this is this like a, uh, kind of like a chandelier of, of candles? The basin is, is oil, and then there's a bunch of wicks that come up and make up the top where the lights yeah. are at. no yeah i think you're right there was a like a rectangular pan and so i was assuming maybe they put it on a flat surface they could have hung it from each corner from a chain and used it kind of like a candelabrum sure okay 1763 we have first real reflectors used and these were just polished metal um sheets just put behind candles so not spectacular but making forward strides they were used as early as six the 1650s, but they just weren't as effective. They just didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> so, so these these reflectors, they're 
uh, I guess they'd be concave polished metal sheets, right? The first ones were just flat. It was just flat. a piece of metal. But okay. eventually the reflectors started to be a parabola shape, like a half sphere. Sure. And would be uh, the candle would just be sitting in front of it. Later I'll talk about how that was improved. Okay. So, so stupid stupid question you can tell me it's later on, but uh, they faced the ocean, right? The waterway. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. And and are we into this the technology yet where we're like flashing the light? No. With the, we're not okay. there yet. This right. is like right. we're, we're barely even. We're barely even making light at this point. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Candle times. All right. 1782. We have the argon oil lamp, and this is what I was talking about. People take a good thing, they add one little bit, and they just call it their own their own invention. So I'm going to mention the argon oil lamp, and then I'm not going to mention pretty much anything like it, because there's about 20 different lamps made after this that were just little edits to the argon oil lamp. Gotcha. So it was invented in the 1780s, and this one had a chimney to help airflow and uh, to remove smoke. So you'd be able to see this bright flame that always had oxygen running through it and didn't have any of that smoke getting in the way. So that was an improvement. This oil lamp produced seven candle power. And I'm going to talk about candle power a lot because we started oh, yeah. out with candles and it's kind of a fun comparison to say, you know, you have one one lit candle, that's one candle power. And as we improve, we see a, a drastic change in that yeah. number. <laughs> I think there's a, was it Candela? Now I'm Googling yeah. again. Candela. Is that a, it's yep. 0.987 of a candle power. Gotcha. Just a, just a note to, to show you how much brighter we get. Just putting a parabolic reflector on a argon oil lamp increased its candle power to 2,500 from 7. <laughs> wow. Next, we have the early 1800s. So this is not long after the argon oil lamp is produced, that we have a candle or a lamp that's protected in a sphere of half reflector and half glass. It would be closed except for a chimney and someone could use a crank to open the sphere in half in order to trim the wick and clean the inside from soot. Hmm. And this is also when they started to bring in color to lighthouse lamps. They would change okay. this sphere of glass to be red or green. Okay, so that's essentially like the first uh, flame-powered bulbs, essentially. Right. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. And they were really big spheres, like a few feet across, a couple feet across. Is this like a stained glass, or how do they do the colored glass? I'm not sure. I didn't see a picture of a colored one. I just saw um, patent drawings. Gotcha. Then, not long after that, in 1812, Winslow Lewis, who was an American ship captain, was paid $20,000 for his simple lamp design that he was using on his ship. People paying him was the United States government. So, <laughs> <laughs> something I didn't write on here and should have mentioned. It wasn't just like uh, money coming down from the heavens. <laughs> right. That's a good old tax return. So <laughs> I, I missed something. We we talked about this in the first episode, and I was listening, and I, I thought of it. You mentioned pay for lighthouse keepers. Right. Uh, what was the nickname again for the keeper? Wikis. Wikis. So you, I like that. So you mentioned pay for them. Is it – this? Again, maybe a bad question. Is this the government that's paying them? Is right. it townships? Is it like sailors' unions? I, I assume none of that was organized throughout history. Oh. So how did that work? 
I just assumed it was government because, you know? It's kind of, it's for the benefit of the ships, right? Which I guess benefits the local governments. I don't know. I, it's, I find it, and, you know, we're talking about a wide range of history here. So maybe that's something to explore in the future, but interesting right. to me. Here we go. Most lighthouse keepers were thought of as employees of the United States Lighthouse Service, which was founded in 1789. So they were paid through this um, USLS. <laughs> it's the Coast Guard. Yes. They guarded the coast from ships. The U.S. Coast Guard took over responsibility of the USLS in 1939. Wow. So an excellent question. And now I've learned something new. There we go. Thank you very much. All the way through World War One, we had the uh, USLS. Do you think they were active over there? What? In the Great War. <laughs> you think we dispatched the USLS along with the Marines? Well, they got lights. They're very bright. So, well, I, I mentioned... A very particular in, set of skills. Yeah. Well, I mentioned in my last episode that lighthouse keepers were a made, played a major role in search and rescue. So maybe they were like... The watchdogs of the U.S. There you go. There you go. The <laughs> war effort. So right, Winslow so got, yes. was paid $20,000, and I just looked it up, and that's almost $500,000 today. That's so balling out of control. That's pretty hefty for an American ship captain to suddenly have yeah. 500K just for his lamp design. And here's how it goes. It had a burner, and this was supplied with a fountain of oil. I looked at a patent picture of it, and it's fairly confusing. So maybe that's why they paid him so much, is because it looked complex. But apparently it was inefficient, but was used for 40 years. Like it burned a lot of oil? Yeah, and just not a lot of light going on, which sounds familiar. A fountain of oil sounds (laughs) very, very generous. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. We could look up pictures and talk about it, but I, I couldn't really figure out which end was up. Sure. So by the 1820s, we had a bunch of different mechanical lamps coming up. So these had clockwork and piston pumps in them, which basically was to uh, keep oil supplied in a way that wouldn't just be sitting. You wouldn't just have a larger reserve. There'd be some sort of flow of oil going into your lamps. That was for piston pumps. And the clockwork was for flash patterns. So this is where we have the introduction of the rotating lamps. I mentioned it in my first episode as well. Originally, this was imitated by putting a circle of metal that has only one opening around a candle, and that would be rotated by clockwork. So you would just see the light through the hole every once in a while and give the illusion that the light is rotating until they actually got around to rotating the actual lamp. This is where we see the prism be introduced. So I'll talk about the prism in a little bit because there's a lot of fun facts that come along with it and describing it and... They're still used today, and they're really cool, so I'll describe it in a little bit. But I'll just keep going ahead with our lamp. So next is Funk's 8-Day Lamp, and this was a classic lantern shape for that time period where it was kind of rotund on the bottom and skinny on the top, glass. That nice Coke bottle shape. Yeah, exactly. A little bit more um, accentuated than that. Sure. And it had a top on it of metal that had a bunch of oil in it. So it was like a top-heavy lantern that had a well of oil. And it was not very bright, but it was super low-maintenance because you only had to refill the oil every eight days. So after that, 1857, we have the first electric arc lamp. This was 
confusing to read about, and I'll give you my best description that I got. And it was a small electric arc that was formed between two carbon rods, but the arc would only form if the carbon rods were a very specific distance away from one another. And the heat between the arc would melt some of the carbon rods over time, so someone need, would need to come over and rotate the rods together, which would bring them a little bit closer together. That was interesting, but uh, don't really know the science behind it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of, it's actually, that still exists to today. So, like, modern day embodiment of that technology would be like the spark plug, which is essentially um, two electrical points that an arc will flash between uh, when it's charged, you know, uh, and, and that introduces a spark to a motor on all of internal combustion engines. But over time, um, essentially, one of the tips of the spark plug is super sharp. So it's a precise control of that arc. Uh, but over time, that sharp tip becomes worn, both because it's inside of an engine um, and also due to the electrical arc across deteriorating that tip. So kind of the same issue. We've come a long way in materials and design, but uh, the principle's still there. It's really cool. Vince is a mechanical engineer. So if you didn't understand yes. any of that, I didn't either. Yeah, <laughs> it sounded great, though. It sounded great. You just say something confidently, and you know uh, a handful of things, and it sounds great. So that's where I'm at. Well, thank you for your knowledge. You're welcome. Glad to be here. <laughs> okay, 1886, we have the first electrically lit light in America, which was the Statue of Liberty. I did not know that either. <laughs> where was the light? It's in the, um, the, in the torch. torch, yeah. Is it still there? Okay, let me look again. Well, there is a light in the torch, but I'm not sure if it was used. I have not been to New York, and uh, apparently I'm not paying attention. Didn't know there was a light there. The torch was the part that was lit, which is shocking, because I was going to say, Statue of Liberty was used as a lighthouse beacon for 17 years. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. That's wicked cool. And the French made it. We got it for free. It's <laughs> a good deal. They just gave us the coolest lighthouse ever. I'm also American, so I'm biased. They, they really, <laughs> they really should have painted that thing. Because she's green now. Yeah, they should have done. So. I mean, they should have done something. Maybe a nice wax. I guess uh, because I'm used to it, that I think it looks great. But you could be right. I just think uh, upkeeping paint on that large of a structure would have been a pain in the ass. It's true. But anyway, so Lady Liberty was used as a navigational aid for ships that were entering New York Harbor during this time. Cool <laughs> fun fact. So now we are entering the early 1900s, so not that long ago. We have the first incandescent oil vapor lamps. I didn't look at how those work. Uh, which is three times the power of argon lamps. And that's argon lamps not including any of the reflectors or anything like that. I'm assuming uh, since the introduction of reflectors, they used them because it was so much better than if you used a lamp without them. Sure. Soon after that, Thomas Edison invents the tungsten filament light bulb. And that leads to the 1,000 to 3,000 watt light bulbs that are used in lighthouses now. And one watt is equal to 12,000 candle power. So wow. we have millions of candle power coming out of lighthouses now. Yeah, that's incredible. And we still use the Fresnel lenses. And I'll talk about those in a second. First, I talked about the Eddystone lighthouses a lot, just because there's so much information about them and they have all this cool history and everything. So the first Eddystone lighthouse 
candles were used, but there's not a lot of information. And in the second and third one, we had 24 candles in a candelabrum, and they were each a half pound, and they still have some candles from during this time period that you can purchase as like historical uh, museum quality items. Not that I was That's looking crazy. or anything. No. <laughs> not that never. I was interested, you know. You wouldn't want to decorate your apartment with nautical stuff. <laughs> it's more about finding room for where it goes within all my nautical stuff. <laughs> right. Fair. Just got to worry about the fish smell. Oh. Oh, yeah. They could have been tallow. Mm. Yeah, maybe I don't want that. So. So, modern day bulbs. Is that where we're at now? Uh, I'm just doing fun facts about Eddie Stone Lighthouses. Um, gotcha. Anything that happened at the Eddie Stone Lighthouse was the best there was. That was like the basis for what was cool in the lighthouse world. After that, in the third and fourth Eddie Stone Lighthouses, we were replaced with oil lamps and prisms in 1810 and just have improved on that ever since. And so here we go with talking about prisms. In the 18th century, they had a crack at prisms, you know, like they, they had a go and the glass was just too thick and it sometimes made it even harder to see just because it was so warped and wasn't really improving on the light source at all. So Fresnel <laughs> lenses were developed by a French physicist, Augustin Jean Fresnel. Fresnel, Mr. Fresnel. Um, was it Dr. Yeah. Fresnel, Mr. Fresnel? Uh, it doesn't say doctor, it just says physicist. So mm. this is spelled F-R-E-S-N-E-L, if anyone wants to look up what a Fresnel lens looks like, because it's pretty cool. It kind of looks like someone hollowed out a diamond and stuck it on top. I think they look really, really cool. So this was invented and are still used today in 1822. An open flame loses about like 97% of its light because we have light beams going off in every direction and it just dissipates really quickly. Mm-hmm. If you have a reflector in the back, then your flame is losing between like 60 to 80% of its light. But with a Fresnel lens, you lose only a maximum of 20% of your light. Wow. So this is a huge improvement. And the brightest beam from a Fresnel lens can be seen over 20 miles away. And originally, the best they could do was 8 miles. So more than doubled the distance of a lighthouse's beacon. That's incredible. So are these... Are they directional? Like, does it minimize the, it kind of concentrates the light so it's further seen, but um, less broad? So, I'll describe it. You really should look up a picture. It's incredible. Just look up. I am. I'm looking right now. It's a bunch of glass prisms. So, you know how kids draw suns with a bunch of uh, lines coming off of it? Mm -hmm. Light is the same way everywhere. And so you have this candle that's giving off all these different lines. And so they put a bunch of prisms on the top of a lamp. So normally where you'd lose all of those lines that are going off in directions that you don't need them to go, a light beam will hit an edge of a prism and be redirected to where you want it to go. Fresnel lenses would take all of the light beams from every direction from a flame and redirect them forward into a one directional beam. You can That's look up diagrams and stuff, but I saw someone was selling a second order Fresnel lens on eBay for $75,000. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just thinking that. I was looking at this glasswork. I was like, this would be extremely expensive to manufacture. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, not an expert in glass, but uh, it looks very intricate. Some of these are huge too. Yeah. So the first order lights were up to 12 feet tall. 12 feet. Incredible. 
So it goes, well, I'll finish the history and then I'll talk about it. But after his death, his design was built upon to distinguish lighthouses from another with frequency of flashes and um, even multiple beams and using color. And several orders or sizes were used um, from hyperradial, which is first order, to eighth order, which is the smallest. First order are always used on coastlines that are going out to open sea. And eighth order are something like um, bays or rivers. That's um, just a, it's like an order of magnification or? It's size. That doesn't make sense. And, so first um, is the largest? Yeah, first is the largest. And these are the ones that have beams that can be seen over 20 miles away because yeah. there's a ton of different prisms on it and it's really large. So it's catching everything. And then if you have smaller and smaller lenses, it's just less impactful. Right. So as an example, Bodie Island Lighthouse, which you and I are going to go see in September. Let's go. This one uses first order because it's a major seacoast and this beam can be seen 21 miles out to sea. That's incredible. Yeah, so now lighthouses are over a million candle power, as opposed to when the best they could do was seven. Incredible. <laughs> and you can't, I mean, especially for conditions where lighthouses are important, right? Mm-hmm. So inclement weather, um, areas where a lighthouse is specifically put there because of a hazard on the, the shore. Um, it's kind of incredible. We're talking, you know, a handful of candle power to uh, millions. It's hard to even wrap your head around trying to think of millions of candles. Yeah. So I thought this would be a good time to mention flash patterns um, because as much as lighthouses look different along coastlines so you can distinguish them, they also have different flash patterns so you can distinguish them during the nighttime. So here I am again using North Carolina Outer Banks lighthouses as examples because I'm excited to go. (laughs) (laughs) So, Bodie Island Lighthouse, which is the one that I just said has a first-order lens, it has a sequence of the light being on for two and a half seconds, off for two and a half, on for two and a half, and off for 22.5 seconds. So, Hmm. we get two flashes, and then it's off for almost half a minute, and then it comes and repeats. And are these, is this electrically controlled, so it's the bulb turns on and off? Yes, everything's automated now. Yeah, so they have a... They have a light, an electric light inside the frontal lens right? instead of it being a candle now. Ocracoke, a fun fact about Ocracoke Island, it's where Blackbeard died. Just thought that was interesting. <laughs> Just want everyone to know that as much as I love lighthouses, I also love pirates. Ask me anything. Ocracoke Lighthouse has a fourth order lens and it's on at all times, so there's no flashing. Haturus has a first order that was destroyed by vandals. And so it was replaced with an arrow beacon that's on every seven and a half seconds. And then we have Cape Lookout. It actually has a lot of haunted history about it. This one is on every 15 seconds, and it's one of the few that operates during the day. Normally they're not on during the day, but this one is. I'm not sure the reason for that, but... So this uh, this timing that's involved with, with dictating, it dictates what, uh, or rather communicates what point it is is that right what lighthouse it's coming from yeah uh so is this constantly in a certain direction or is it i'm kind of gotten lost as far as the rotation of the light direction as well as the timing of it how does that work when invented the lens didn't spin but this was introduced later so now the beacon can rotate or stay fixed 
or do a um, combination of flashing or fixed light. So if there is a Fresnel lens, then the lens is what rotates. But if you have just a high-powered lamp like an aero beacon, the lamp will rotate. The Fresnel lens have a light beam exit point, which is where all the prisms are faced so that your light will come out in a unidirectional beam. Or it can have many, so there can be three exit points or eight exit points. Um, and this will get, decide how many beams you have and how many flashes you see and how long the dark gaps are. And originally the beacon can only rotate once every eight minutes. And the introduction of the mercury bed increased this to flashes of three tenths of a second. And actually the French took this a step too far and made it one tenth of a second with their lightning lens. And this was hated bitterly by mariners and so they don't use it anymore. <laughs> so one question I've got for you, this is kind of strange but i grew up in a small town uh middle of nowhere so no ocean around no bays around uh, but our airport that was local did have a light um and it was it was a light that at nighttime if it, there was any dust in the air harvest time or anything like that you could see it sweep across the sky and there were two beams one was white and then it seemed like the opposite you know 180 degrees of that was green and they were very intensely bright. Is that at all related to the same technology? Maybe, I don't know, but it sounds like um, like lighthouses originally were for land navigation and not for sea navigation. And so it's probably stemmed from that. I'm not sure if the lenses are the same because you can do powerful light without a frontal lens. Right. But maybe it is the same build, I don't know. Interesting. I have one more flash pattern, and that's Curatuck. And this one is cool because it flashes one and a half seconds of red every 45 seconds of white. Cool. That's cool. <laughs> that's really cool. Curatuck is also one of the only lighthouses that are um, not painted because they used one million bricks, and they wanted to show it off. They're like red bricks then? Yes. It's a red lighthouse, which is the first lighthouse that we're going to see on our trip. <laughs> We're going to have people joining us at this rate. <laughs> Looks good. So what else we got? So next, we can talk about erosion. Because many lighthouses are built on sand and seabeds and rock, which are unpredictable and wear down over time, especially because waves are rough. And so lighthouses need to be rebuilt a lot in different locations because of erosion, right? <gasps> or do they? Because we can move lighthouses. So we don't have to take them down and rebuild them because we can just move them when it's convenient. Yeah, sounds really easy. <laughs> Once again, I don't really know the mechanical part of moving a lighthouse because it was a lot of words and a lot of equipment. But here's the basis of it. And an example of a lighthouse that we're going to go see in September. Haturus <laughs> uh, was built in 1860 and it was 1,500 feet from the ocean. And the outer banks are very skinny. And so occasionally, especially over time, waves would go from one end of the outer banks to the other side. So we're getting a lot of sand movement, uh, sand relocation. Sure. And by the 1930s, uh, people started to talk about how they were going to preserve this lighthouse because they see the coastline coming in closer and closer. 
there were a lot of different talks about how they were going to do this. They were going to put up barriers and things like that, basically to redirect water and try and keep sand along that edge. But eventually they decided to walk it 1,600 feet inland at an angle. And this was really controversial because people were convinced that they were going to lose the lighthouse because how do you walk a lighthouse that's 5,000 tons? Well, the gist that I got was that they use hydraulic jacks to lift from the foundation. Here, a little bit more of a description that I remember reading about. The base of this lighthouse was built on timber that was submerged in fresh water, so it wasn't rotting underneath, I think, because there wasn't any airflow, so it was just fresh water underneath the bed of sand and also stone and concrete. You had this timber that was a little bit more flexible than if you were just sitting on stone. And so what they did was used hydraulic jacks to lift it from this timber foundation. And then they slid rollers underneath and they moved the lighthouse five feet per day till it was in its new location. That's and, so wild. That sounds very expensive and very time consuming. Yeah. And they had to cut down trees and basically clear land in this half mile stretch they're moving no, no, it. I'm, look, I'm looking at photos right now. They cleared a swath of the forest. There's, yeah. Folks, if you're ever wondering where your tax money goes, uh, <laughs> it's been a couple of years, but, you know, lighthouses are going to have to be moved again, so. Yeah. Well, they're even talking <laughs> about it now. Are they really? Yep. Things just change so fast. What are you going to do? But I thought it was interesting that they that on the lighthouse, they had 60 different automated sensors that were measuring basically if this lighthouse was moving any way they didn't want it to at any time. And if like there was high winds or if there was any sort of a wiggle, they were just constantly monitoring it every second that they were moving it. Five feet per day. It's yeah. like not a lot. But when you think about this tower that's a couple hundred feet tall yeah that's can't really help incredible. Be a little extra cautious and they're, they're they're hollow right because inside you've got mm-hmm. uh some staircases yeah <sighs> probably had a lot of eyes on them too because everyone was convinced it was going to come down but it didn't and we still have her tourists that's all i got for walking lighthouses um i have a little bit of fun facts here that i can read and i think i will just some things that i read while i was doing research that were really interesting it's just a couple the most expensive lighthouse ever created was $752,000 in the 19th century, which is over $20 million today, and that was the St. George Reef. I don't really know the reason for why it cost so much, but I do know that it was twice the budget for the lighthouse. And um, St. Augustine Lighthouse had a frontal lens that wouldn't spin, and because it was so powerful, it would start fires. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> It's just this beam of light that was too strong You're and it started ants fires. Now. Yeah, so they That's had incredible. to make it spin. Did, <laughs> do you know any of like where the fires, like where the the lighthouse was lighting on fire, or? No, uh, it was like the beam of light was so strong that it would start fires like nearby vegetation. Oh my God. <laughs> An act of God, or maybe it's just a lighthouse. Sorry. You know what it is? It's the eye of Sauron. So, what is it? Sauron. I wanted to be uh, really confident. Uh, Sauron. So why do you know why it wouldn't spin? They just didn't build it that way. They didn't need it to. And then all of a sudden, they really needed it to. Right. They burned <laughs> everything in its path. So <laughs> It's just like a vengeful lighthouse. That's why uh, That's why we sent the, what was the, USLH? We sent them to war. USLS. That's why uh, we sent USLS. them away. USLS. Yeah. <laughs> Could have had long-range heat light weapons, but, you know, it was before, before its time. The Great War would have been really interesting. Yeah, it would have been a lot more medieval, in my opinion. 
Um, in Vancouver, they had a tradition that actually uh, helped sailors set their ship's chronometers for 9 p.m. if they heard the lighthouse keeper explode a stick of dynamite outside. That was their signal that it was 9 p.m. and they needed to set their equipment. It sounds like an expensive clock uh, as far as timekeeping goes. Yeah, you'd think he'd just hit a bell or something, but it became this big thing and now they can't set off dynamite. So now they just shoot a um, cannon at 9 p.m. So there's now a cannon in place of dynamite. Yes, and now it's like a traditional thing. And I read that this isn't super interesting, but I kind of thought it was fun. They turned the light off that's above this cannon uh, like 10 seconds before it goes off and then they turn it back on 10 seconds after that. So you you know whoever came up with the dynamite idea was a total pyro, firecracker head. Yes. And then the, the guy who came up with I assume it's a guy came up with, you know what, <laughs> guys, we got to go modern. You know, this is dangerous. It's expensive. I think we need a cannon. You know, they're just, <laughs> just keeping the spirit of it. I love it. I wonder if originally the keeper was still in charge of setting off this cannon. I bet he was. I bet. It's a tough job. Someone's got to do it. Yeah. And he wasn't even the one who came up with it. He's probably just like told by the higher ups that he had to start doing this. He's like, are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah. Every nine o'clock, you get to handle dynamite. Uh, <laughs> He's like, the job is already hard enough. There's mercury everywhere. <laughs> yeah, insurance rates are high. Yeah, it's yeah, no workers' comp. Last fun fact is that, I, like I talked about earlier, we had the lighthouse and we had the light tower, but you combine those two and you have a light station. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that also included a boathouse or anything they needed, like a fuel station or if they had a separate building for a fog signal. But yeah, so that would be a light, a light station. station. So if you have a there combination of the two, it's not a lighthouse. It's a light station. Interesting. Do you have any examples uh, of that? Are they, are they still around? Like, uh, like a compound? Well, if there's any lighthouse that's out on a little island by itself... Which is actually more common than I thought it was. I thought most were on coastlines, but it's actually pretty common to have a lighthouse out on an island. Which makes sense because if you're out sailing and you don't see a little island, you know, there's no inhabitants on it. There's no lights. There's nobody to tell you that it's coming up. Then you'd put a lighthouse on it. But all of those are light stations, especially because they had a boathouse and um, fueling station and ways to contact other people. Interesting. That's all I have for this episode, talking about beacons and walking lighthouses and all those fun facts. Great. Well, I feel illuminated. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> illuminated. A great choice of words for the beacon episode. The first of many. But yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, I'm going to place some references in the show notes this time because um, I had a couple and they were all from USLS. So I'm glad that we covered that in this episode because I didn't know what kind of just knowledge gold I had in my hands this whole time. There you go. Vince, thanks for helping me out. And uh, if you like my show, everyone, please subscribe. And we'll see you in the next episode of The Lighthouse Lowdown. Lowdown.